0: And once again, welcome to the show. I am Josh Vermont.
1: And I'm Kelly Hager, and this is Press Play and Scream, part of the Stolen Dress Entertainment Podcast Network.
0: You're damn right it is. And Kel, what did we see this week that we cannot wait to talk about?
1: We saw the incredibly polarizing Halloween ends.
0: And isn't it nifty, really, that it almost completely and wonderfully signifies a year of us doing this Show It's not an exact anniversary because uh, the last Halloween movie was technically the second episode that we did. But still, it's kind of a hoot, isn't it, that we've gotten this far?
1: It really is. And when when you think about it, if you want to be technical, the first episode we did for a new movie was Halloween Kills. There you so go. So while it was only our second episode, um, or I mean, our second episode, not our first one. You know, it was our first new movie.
0: Yeah, so it's still a big deal. And folks, if you've been there since the beginning, I just want to say thanks so much for hanging in there with our absolute nonsense. (laughs) We really do appreciate it. And we can't wait to talk about how this film in particular affected us. Because Cal was absolutely right in saying it was extremely polarizing. People saying it was the worst Halloween movie ever made. People saying that it was doing something new, audacious, original, and exciting uh i mean
1: that was us we were the ones who said that second one
0: well we weren't alone though i think it's important to note and some people interestingly enough comparing this to the rob zombie movies which i of course particularly enjoy and which a lot of people would prefer to uh inhale radioactive waste than to watch again uh kel right off the bat how did you feel about this what were your initial impressions about this film
1: i absolutely loved it um you may remember that when we saw Halloween Kills, uh, right after leaving the movie, I didn't like it. I had to watch it three times. And I think it might have even been three more times. So a total of four times before I could find nice things to say about it. And honestly, at this point, I feel like that might have been Stockholm Syndrome. But right from the start with this one, I I was very into it. I was very into it the entire time. And watching it again today, which I did before, before we taped this, it held up really well on second viewing. It was still very tense. I, I absolutely loved it. And I do agree that it was doing new things. I can see the, the comparison to Rob Zombie's too. Um, But it's also, I think, very much its own thing. And I, I think easily my favorite of the new trilogy.
0: Yeah. Definitely. Um, it is most certainly, I, I agree, the best of the new trilogy. I uh, am going to go out on a very shaky limb, uh, for which I'm probably going to have stones thrown at me. But for me personally, this was the best of the entire franchise. And for me, that includes the first one. Uh, and I said this to you as we left the movie theater, that I have always considered myself a fan of this franchise. Obviously, a lot of the, you know, a mixed bag. Some of them are better than others. Uh, You know me, I love Rob Zombie ones uh, in particular, but coming away from this film in particular, I really understood something that for me was kind of profound, which is that I have not really enjoyed any previous installment of this franchise beyond thinking to myself, that was a good horror film. You know, it had good kills. It had some moments of tension. I know that you worship this franchise in general and the first movie in particular, I know that you've watched it to death. Me, personally, I've never had that connection with it. I respect it. Uh, I respect the first movie completely. I think that it has earned its place in cinema history uh, for what it started in terms of slasher films and certainly for the way it was made, uh, which was groundbreaking. But I've never personally considered it a masterpiece. I've never considered it a must-watch every Halloween season. To me, it's always been, yeah, it's a good movie about a guy in a white rubber mask with a knife, uh, terrorizing teenagers. I mean, it's solid. It's solid. It's fun. This satisfied me on a level that none of these other films ever, ever have. I've never felt this tense when watching a Halloween movie. I've never felt that the characterization's been this sharp and this interesting and this good in a Halloween movie. I've never felt this strongly about every kill in the movie. As I did in this film and certainly the conclusion uh, had me coming away from it uh, feeling as though I was just like humming the music from a really great musical I just watched I mean it was just it got my soul in a way that the other movies in the Halloween franchise never ever have and again I know people are going to say I'm an asshole they're going to say I was never really a fan of the franchise to begin with I don't care. I can't believe this was done by the same people who did the last two movies. I'm Because I'm with you on that. I did not walk away from either of those movies feeling like they were good initially or that I enjoyed them. Uh, I came to see things about them later on that I felt like that was okay, that was solid. But the whole thing left me scratching my head the last two films. Like, what is this exercise? What is all of this about, really? And I still feel like if it hadn't been building Laurie Strode's granddaughter up as a character i still wouldn't understand what the hell the last two movies were about we could have just had this and this was a masterpiece uh, i thought absolutely
1: so um does it make you want to rewatch the the previous two maybe in a a marathon with this one and see if you like it better and see if they flow better or are you just going to be watching this one
0: it's hard to say i'd like to believe that, if I went back and rewatched the previous two, I would feel more about them having watched this, but I don't think I would because I really did want to get as much as possible from the last two when I watched them. I mean, I probably will do that uh at some point just as a you know force of habit when when it comes to this sort of film, but generally, generally, I would just see myself rewatching this one more than I would rewatch any other movie in the in the franchise other than again, perhaps the zombie films. And this kind of made me reevaluate those two because I think the reason why I've always enjoyed them was that they felt like they took the framework of Halloween and added some glitter and glue and razzmatazz on top of it. That like the previous movies didn't really have, didn't really feel the need to have. You've got the guy in the, in the white mask, and you've got the stabbing and the killing and the, Stalking, and that's all fun. And you've got, you know, the characters that you want to have. But you also have the little Rob Zombie layer of dirt on top of it with the kind of aesthetic that he's known for and the, you know, cheap, shitty, but kind of wonderful humor that he's, you know, so good at. And the extra little bit of gore on top of that. I mean, it felt like it was tarted up a little bit in a way that made it more interesting to me. And this took it way beyond that into something that felt like. Even if, and this was from what I understand, one of the main gripes from people who loathed and despised this movie was that Michael Myers was not in it enough for them. They felt like he was almost an afterthought as a character. I can see how they'd feel that way. I think it's the kind of thing almost like Darth Vader or Jaws, where withholding it gave it more power in this instance. And also, Made a very important point, which is that ultimately, I think this franchise has never really been about Michael Myers. That was what this movie was telling us, was that it's about how the darkness in somebody like Michael Myers can seep out into a community. And we've seen bits and pieces and, you know, hints of that in the previous movies. We've never really seen it hit the way it's been hit in this in this film. So I loved it. I, I thought it was an absolute treat. Uh, to see this, and especially on the big screen where the tension really radiates. Uh, So folks, you know, I know that it's on Peacock and obviously if you have a chance to watch it, you should, but if you can see it on that big screen, you're going to get a little something extra for it.
1: Yeah, I would, I would agree. And I think getting back to what you said about Michael Myers not really being in it. Yes, I absolutely understand that complaint. I understand that as we have learned from halloween 3 season of the witch and friday the 13th 5 you know we we live in a world where fans of a franchise want to see the villain in the franchise and that's that's understandable that's you know, it, it it is what we want and it's it's why it's a halloween movie and not you know just some random other horror movie not linked to a franchise but i think yeah we we started to see in halloween kills the way that the people of haddonfield were becoming the villain collectively and we saw that on a macro level i think in halloween kills and in this one we see more of the micro thing where they turn animosity onto this other person and i guess belated note that there will be spoilers in this episode but this this teenage boy named Corey who accidentally murdered i don't even think we can say murdered can we because it wasn't on purpose it wasn't like michael myers killing his sister judith it was it was
0: manslaughter it was
1: yeah manslaughter at best i i would say yeah maybe negligent homicide because you you could make the case, I think, that a reasonable person bursting out of a room holding a knife close to the top of the stairs, you know, a reasonable person could think maybe, oh, this might not be the best idea. But y- y- anyway, accidental death, negligent homicide, you know, at best. But the, the way that this kid, Corey, was treated by the town eventually ended up making him into the monster that they treated him like he was the entire time
0: absolutely and this is something that uh, I'm going to be harping on throughout this entire episode but this is just from the word go we have this this opening scene and I even said it to you on the way out of the theater I don't care what the title of the movie is I don't care if it's in a franchise not in a franchise if you walk into any movie and it starts with this scene of this poor babysitter, dude accidentally uh, murking this kid you're hooked that is a hell of an opening scene it is a fish hook through the mouth in terms of tension uh, in terms of grabbing the audience it has nothing to do with Michael Myers it does not need to have anything to do with Michael Myers but it has everything to do with the theme of this film which is from the word go we do not like that fucking kid that kid is annoying as shit He's a pain in the ass. He's rude to this poor kid.
1: Calls him an ugly ass boy babysitter.
0: That's right. That's correct. And acts like a holy terror, locks, uh, you know, this poor guy in a closet. And now, does any of that mean that this kid deserves to die?
1: Yes. No. (laughs) No. I hate kids too,
0: but- in and of itself, the answer is no. And you can even say to yourself, as I was saying to myself, sitting in the movie theater, when Corey's is trying to kick his way out of the closet and break down the door, Corey, don't do that. The parents are going to be home any minute. They'll let you out of the closet and they'll, you know, I don't know, probably not spank the kid, even though they should, but you know, it doesn't really demand Corey kicking open the door, but Corey is freaking out. And so that's what Corey does. And it leads to something horrible. It leads to the kid going over the railing and, you know, the kid dies. Now, we hate the kid, just like Corey hates the kid. But that scene where the kid goes over the rail and we watch the kid twitch and bleed out at the bottom, we feel it. We feel that sense of horror, but we also feel that sense of guilt because a second before we were like, oh, I wish that kid would get it. I wish something horrible would happen to that little mannerless fucker. And That sets the tone for the movie. Every one of these kills just about, you feel it because you're watching it and you're not just watching someone die on screen. You're watching someone die on screen that you fucking detest. Someone who has been set up to be so fucking bad and so obnoxious and grotesque for whatever reason that the audience, you know, you're sitting there and you're saying, fuck that person and I can't wait for that person to die. And then that person does die and it's everything you want and it's also a little bit more. It's even grosser. It's more grotesque than you expect it to be every time. And you have that sense of dark, evil, twisted, shitty satisfaction in that moment. If you're anything like me, you're sitting there curled up into a ball with your fists clenched saying, yeah, yeah, kill the fucker. But when the fucker dies, you feel that little squishy moment inside of you of like, oh, that was a bit much even for me. (laughs) For the for the movie to put a person into that mindset, that personal emotional roller coaster when we're watching it, of feeling what Corey is feeling in a way that I don't think we usually do, even with a lot of POV slasher movies, which the original was almost one of the prototypes of from that very first scene. What's the first thing we ever see? Young Michael Myers, we're seeing it through his eyes, through the mask. We're seeing everything he does, but we're not feeling everything that he does the way that we feel it in this movie with what Corey is doing. And I love that. I love that it makes us feel that hatefulness that, uh, because that's the point is that it, again, Michael Myers' supposed evil that he was born with, or whatever you want to believe, however it got into him, is contagious. It is viral and it gets through the town and it gets through the screen. And it infects us the same way it infects the people of Haddonfield. It didn't in the last movie. In the last movie, we were far more comfortable to sit in our little seats with our popcorn boxes and watch while the Haddonfield community went fucking nuts and turned into a mob and sitting there saying, well, that's, scarily reminiscent of January 6th and it's certainly not anything I would be a part of by crikey I wouldn't be one of these scary ridiculous people taking to the streets with torches and pitchforks you don't feel that way about this film this film you feel like every one of these people had it coming and you're inside this guy's brain for it and people are saying oh why would you throw a new character uh, like Corey into a franchise in the last thing I don't know maybe because it worked so fucking well how about that maybe because they did it so well and it came across so perfectly in this. I don't care that he's a new character. He doesn't feel like one. To me, he feels like what Havenfield has always been about from the word go.
1: Well, I, I completely agree with everything you said, but I would also say, oh, we shouldn't get a new character. I mean, we we got Alice in Nightmare on Elm Street 4. We And we had returning characters. So it's not like a Friday the 13th, say, where it's nothing but new people all the time. You know, we got Alice. She was new. Uh, Danielle Harris popped up in uh, Halloween 4. And uh, Ellie Cornell, also Halloween 4. We we love Rachel and Jamie. Like, those are two of the most beloved characters franchise-wide. Karen and Allison, also new additions to the franchise. All we do is get new people and... I, I think there are legitimate reasons not to like this movie although I don't necessarily agree with them but complaining that we're getting a new a new major character like that that's what horror movies do we get new franchise characters all the time that's that's just what happens
0: their gripe I think is that they felt that Corey was supposed to replace uh Michael as the central, figure and the central monster like the other things that you're talking about are all very valid but they also didn't replace for example in the nightmare and elm street franchise none of those characters was any kind of substitute for freddy's presence on screen so it's a little bit different from that but it also it also kind of isn't though in the same way that like he didn't really replace michael myers per se but he embodied to some degree what michael myers was and with a very complicated thing because we still have michael myers in the movie but like i said before we have a handful of scenes with michael myers and michael myers is entirely haunting this film uh in the same way that again jaws does in in that movie i mean you see him a handful of times but the movie's called jaws for a reason because it's really about the dread it's about the it's not even about the shark it's about the dread of the shark and this movie is not about michael myers it's about the dread of michael myers and how that personifies not just in Corey, but in these marching band assholes for that matter who Mm. are in their own little way little sharks of michael myers walking around of evil and chaos and fucking with people for no good reason at all so i mean his presence uh lives large throughout this entire film obviously anytime the camera is on laurie strode's face it's on Michael Myers to some degree, because we're seeing her haunted by him constantly. She can't live a moment without being defined by him. And that's even uh, you know said outright several times throughout the film. And it's true. It's part of what makes their relationship so great. And what makes the ending of it, again, I keep using the word satisfying, because it most surely is. I think a lot of people, based on what I've seen on Twitter, for example wanted like an hour and a half long mortal combat between her and uh, michael myers and that's not a movie it's certainly not an interesting one i mean it's almost home alone if you kind of said it that way (laughs) you know how many different booby traps is she going to make and how many different times is she going to grapple with a guy in a rubber mask Uh, that's not you know that's not fascinating to me that's not a really satisfying conclusion that that last 15 minutes in the kitchen holy fucking shit you know where he's basically crucified <laughs> and scourged in the same way that the christ was <laughs> and then uh, sacrificed at the end uh, in a weirdly almost biblical ceremony at the junkyard i mean it's beautiful beautiful stuff but what leads us up to it i think
1: can can we just pause for a second and just picture Laurie Strode like putting micro machines in front of the door and like I don't know.
0: But we saw it. Is that we? Is the point is is that we kind yeah. of saw that already, and it was in the first right movie of the trilogy. We already saw her with the weaponized house and this and that. And another thing that people love to bitch about:
1: yeah.
0: we start with a different. Uh, So they say, oh, this is a different Laurie Strode at the start of the movie. No, it's just Laurie Strode after four years. It's just a Laurie Strode who's not quite as militarized in her own mind as she was before, who's in a different phase of her life, but it's still her. And again, Mm -hmm. she, for all of her pretension of having gotten a new house and writing this little memoir of hers, which is a little ridiculous, but I like that. It should be a little ridiculous for somebody like her to, to think that she's going to make sense of this. Through narrating it in some book, but it gives the movie a structure that works. And you know, she's the th- people saying she's a different character. She is absolutely the same character.
1: Yeah, I mean, and we can even as she parades the idea that you know, oh, I've I've done therapy and I moved into a new house and I, you know, I live. I don't hide. I don't prepare to fight. You know, when when we see the house she's still very much haunted like her phone's uh her phone's wallpaper is her daughter there are pictures of karen um there's a picture of her and annie and linda from her friends that were murdered in the original halloween you know i mean she's very much still defined by that night i think i think she's faking it a little bit to try and help her daughter her granddaughter allison you know to help her cope with the fact that and one night she became an orphan and a lot of her friends died too. But I think it's basically like in, in Nightmare on Elm Street, where you have the the staircase that's all gross in that one dream sequence and there's bits of carpet on top of it. It's like that. She's she's fine. She's got a veneer of fine, but she's not fine.
0: Absolutely. And it's it's there in a hundred different ways. And it's mostly there in her performance, which I mean, again... Uh, You know, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, my God, what an actor always. But I mean, she brought her A-game to this little swan song uh, of Laurie Strode, which I think is a beautiful thing. She respected the audience that way and put her all into it. And again, every frame of film with her face on it is the face of what Michael Myers has done. And you're right. There's a lot of pretending that she's doing. And she is lying to herself in many ways over the course of this movie. Uh, Which, again, I think is just, that's character work. That's character work on a level that we've gotten lip service from uh, in so many previous uh, movies in this franchise. Like, I know you love H2O. I love it, too, uh, for what it is. But you take the diner scene, for example, with her and Adam Arkin which is basically supposed to cover her trauma to a certain, I'm sorry, trauma, as Jamie Lee Curtis likes to say, her trauma about this and hold it up against any frame of film of just her face in this and her wearing it, uh, her her grief and her shame. And this is kind of a personal tangent, but when we see that, yeah, the wallpaper of her phone is her dead daughter, It reminded me of someone I knew back in Chicago, uh, this uh, middle-aged woman. She worked the public defender's office. She was very eccentric uh, in a lot of ways. She was a neighbor of mine, and she had lost a daughter at a very young age, and she had a photograph of her daughter next to her bed, which seems like normal behavior, but it wasn't just any photograph of her daughter. It was the photograph of her daughter in the coffin. She had that next to her bed all the time. And if you ever asked this woman, you know, whether she had dealt with that and moved on, her answer would be yes. But, uh, you know, she's telling you nothing, but she's showing you everything because she's always on some level displaying that trauma. And I thought about that. And again, the, the kind of thing that I've seen in real life and I'm seeing on this screen and I understand it. And it's shorthand in such a beautiful way. You could have her sit there talked for 20 minutes about everything that Michael Myers had done to her and everything that she was feeling and everything that she was thinking. That photo of her phone, does not that uh, say a thousand words right there? That's great filmmaking. Again, I'm astonished. I'm gobsmacked. The people who made the last two films made this movie. I'd swear it was someone different. I would swear based on the complete lack of what I found to be storytelling refinement. In the last two films, I can't believe they put this together. I'm I'm delighted. Uh, you and I were talking about the fact that this same uh, plucky band of miscreants is about to go ahead and do uh, a new take on The Exorcist. Uh, well, I wasn't that excited before, <laughs> but if they bring this kind of a game to that, I'm uh, I'm can't wait. I can't wait. I'm on one ass cheek to see what they're going to do with that. If they could do this with this franchise, I mean, this was not just a halloween flick this was a movie This this was cinema in a way that i was not prepared for really
1: no i i completely agree and i love that while they've been they've been really deliberate i think in their attempt to make it its own thing but i like the way that they have in subtle ways paid homage to the franchise and to horror movies in general um and we we talked about this super briefly in the movie, but the very very end where they do the um, procession of Michael Myers like strapped to the hood of the car, or not not the hood, but like the the roof of the car, almost like Aunt Edna in Vacation, like it it's that, and it's kind of ridiculous but it also really reminded me of the end of candy man where you have like the entire neighborhood coming out to to witness the destruction of this monster that's haunted them and it was it was a really powerful powerful thing i thought and um I, I did see a complaint that um, Lindsay Wallace was not in the procession, which you know I get it. That's that's fair, but apparently that was a reshoot, and I'm guessing maybe she wasn't available for whatever reason. But uh, shout out to the fast cameo of the person who played who played Julian, who was in the procession. They they show him pretty prominently, really. So
0: the procession was an amazing scene, and as I said, there are weird almost biblical overtones to it. I'm very glad that you mentioned Candyman because it's very easy for me to draw a straight line between Candyman as a concept and especially, especially this most recent installment of that franchise, which you and I have talked about as well, and this film because they both have the same basic premise. Uh, You know, Candyman took us by the shoulders and shook us and said, listen to me very closely, because we're going to be doing more of these. Tony Todd is not Candyman. I know you love Tony Todd. I know that you identify him as Candyman, and I know that he's very important to you. But what you have to understand going forward is that Candyman is an idea. Candyman is in all of you. Candyman is in all of us as a culture. It is a sickness, and it is a symbolic problem and we've identified it as a guy in a fur coat with a hook. And we'll keep doing that because we know that you like to see something that looks like that. But ultimately, you know, get away from Tony Todd, get away from the idea that you understand on a basic level, what this is. You don't, you only think you do. What you need to, to know is that it's bigger than that. And that is what this movie did. And that's to a certain degree, again, that they touched on it a little bit in Halloween kills with the mob and the mob mentality. But this is the film that really hits it, I think, in the exact same way by saying that, again, it's not about what you think it's about. It transcends that. It's about right now, it's about Corey when you come right down to it. Uh, and then it becomes about something that's a little different in that climactic scene, which I love. And it's about the closure from that. But this is called Halloween Ends, and there's no one in the audience, I think, uh, certainly ourselves included, who believes for a moment that Halloween ends. Halloween will never end. Halloween will always be an intellectual property that somebody's going to have an idea about. And it's probably going to involve a guy with a white, white rubber mask.
1: Sure.
0: Uh, that's fine. But the seed that this plants to take it in a hundred other directions that don't need to be the same thing over and over again, that's going to be the test of whoever decides to do this next, of whether they're going to uh, get that and work from that, or if they're going to scribble over it and say, okay, let's start over again for the fourth or fifth time, uh, because I have an idea about how Michael Myers is the guy in the rubber mask. Um, my guess is it's probably going to be the latter, because this didn't ex- exactly get the across-the-board acclaim that it probably should have. Again, a lot of people hated it. But me personally, I, I, I applaud it. And yeah, I think that more and more what we're seeing, and some people don't like the term prestige horror, I love it, or elevated horror, because it makes sense to me. I would call this that. I would say that this is about ideas that are larger and more malleable and can be taken in different directions in a way that the previous films of this franchise have not. the way that they've you know basically always been about us sitting down and saying let's watch michael myers do something the exception of course being halloween three which is at least as divisive as this film was i myself have yet to get to the end of the movie uh but some other people like you kel absolutely adore it but it says the same thing to a certain degree whether it said it in a different way or not that this could have been about something larger that it could have been about community horror to a certain degree and people bitched and moaned, and so they went back to back to Michael. you yeah.
1: know the opening of this, the opening credits, um, the color and the font are essentially identical to Halloween three season of the Witch, which was a thing I picked up on immediately, although I, I did not I did not fully grasp the the fact that that also meant, hey, calm yourself. Michael Myers isn't really in this. But I was I was talking to a friend of mine, my friend Nick, who is also very into horror. And he mentioned that he did not pick up on that. And I was kind of surprised because he likes horror like we do. And it turns out he's only seen Season of the Witch one time, like years and years and years ago. So I, I guess the moral here is watch all the horror movies a whole bunch of times, even if you don't like them, but. There was no real point to that. I just wanted to be a little bit (laughs) self-congratulatory on (laughs) recognizing fonts.
0: No, it's a terrific, uh, it's a terrific catch. I think you're absolutely onto something there. I think you're uh, 100% right that, you know, I always say, because I learned this in film school, nothing you see on the screen is accidental. Everything down to the smallest thing is there because somebody put it there and that makes it a choice. Now, it's not always an educated choice. It's not always something that's, deep or thoughtful or intelligent. Maybe they just felt like red would look better there than green in that moment. But there's a reason they thought that. Even if they don't know it, instinctively, there's a reason why everything is there. And so when you see something like that, I don't think it's for nothing. I think that somebody did that for a reason. And I think they did it for you. So that people like you would catch that. I didn't catch that, obviously. And it's October, so I'll probably do my yearly thing of saying I'm going to try to rewatch season of the witch and getting 15 or 20 minutes in and saying i tried guys i'm sorry (laughs) you know
1: that's that's my honor that's my favorite halloween ritual i think every every year at some point in october and it hasn't happened yet but every year at some point i think everybody loves hocus pocus i'm gonna try and watch hocus pocus and then i make it 20 minutes in and i'm like oh this movie is not for me
0: no yeah no i'd love to I'd, I'd, i'd love to like it but i can't (laughs) just can't do it but no it brings a lot of people a lot of joy and i'm not going to sit here and you know uh say that they're wrong for feeling that i mean whatever you can enjoy in this life do it but it's never spoken to me either but this film uh certainly did speak to me uh, on a very deep level i was so just shocked and astonished and thrilled with it on on every level really um i too was expecting the character of Lindsay to show up a lot more in the movie I feel like they threaded her character so much in the previous one. You know, I expected to see her in some peril. We didn't really need to, though. That's fine. Um, Again, the fact that really 90% of this movie was about Corey, uh, that worked for me. We rarely see in these movies from the inside of the killer's head. We do sometimes, but it's rare. And when we do, a lot of the time it's squeamish for a filmmaker to go too far especially these days, people don't really want to be there. People want to believe that evil is a very abstract notion, that it's something that's separate from us, something we can classify easily, point a finger to, say, that's the boogeyman. And the boogeyman isn't like us, and the boogeyman doesn't have our face, and the boogeyman doesn't come from anywhere or have any background that we need to concern ourselves with. He just pops out of the closet to scare us, and that's what defines him. And that ain't how it works. How it works is that every boogeyman is human and every boogeyman comes from somewhere. Now, we don't have to use that to excuse that boogeyman's actions, but it's important to understand them. And that's where I think culturally we're at a bit of a crossroads, where people are hesitant to do that because they feel that doing that means that they are justifying what that person is doing or agreeing with it or saying that there was a reason for it. And that's two very different things. You can watch Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, which remains the best movie of its kind, I think, in terms of this sort of thing. And Henry's the central character, and you are inside his head as much as you can be. But that doesn't excuse anything that he does, and any reasonable film watcher knows that. But it's a difference between trying to grasp it and trying to accept it. Those are two, or Clockwork Orange, another perfect example of that kind. You know, you can condemn this behavior while still trying to humanize it because you have to. If you don't humanize it, it just keeps coming. You know, we don't know where to look for these kinds of people and we don't know what to do about them when they're right in front of our fucking faces, demanding, pleading that we please for the love of God, notice them and maybe stop them before they do something terrible. And we see it every day. We see it in the news all the time with every mass shooting, just off the top of your head. I mean, every day we see another one of these people, but we never see them until they pick up the knife or the gun. And then they do something fucking terrible. And again, I'm not talking about sympathizing with them. I'm not talking about saying that it's not their fault. I'm just talking about recognizing that they're the same fucking species we are. And that the longer we put that away, and the longer we deny that, the more they will come in human wave attacks And so this Corey character, who, again, we are, you know, in his face, this entire movie, we're in his brain, this entire movie. And we feel what he feels in ways that are uncomfortable, but important, I think. I think it's important that, you know, I feel a little scummy about the fact that I was cheering for him so loudly while he was killing these people. You know, what does that say about me? What does that say about him? So I think that, again, these are huge questions. You don't get these questions from a slasher film. That's unheard of. It's ridiculous to uh, go into a Michael Myers movie and expect to come out with these huge, heavy fucking issues in your head and your heart. And this did that. I mean, it's unafraid. And I think if that spoiled the good time of some uh, filmgoers who were forced to maybe think a little too hard, I don't really have a problem with that, honestly. I, I get it to some degree. That They thought they were just going to go in and watch a, you know, mindless bloodbath and maybe they feel a little cheated by that. I don't. I think that, uh, you know, great cinema asks us these kinds of questions and they're they're scary questions. They're uncomfortable questions. I love that. I I absolutely love that. I, I think that's a hell of an achievement.
1: Well, two things. One is I think a lot of times the best horror movies are about more than they're about. Which is, you know, that's not a that's not a new observation. I'm sure pretty much every horror fan has said that or something similar to that. But yeah, you know, Dawn of the Dead talking about consumerism and this talking about where the blame for things lie. and while while, yes, Corey was treated horribly and incredibly unfairly. Ultimately, you can't, you can't blame anyone. But himself for what happened but when you when you say um as you said earlier about how we're cheering on what happens to pretty much every every victim in this movie and we do we definitely do it reminded me of the movie promising young woman which is horror adjacent i would say um as as a woman who lives in the world i would call it horror adjacent um and yeah like another another polarizing movie but one where things happen to bad people and i mean they're not they're not murdered but things happen to them and i i will tell you honestly every time i watch that movie um you know when when cassie makes people makes men realize how they've acted and what they've done and when she makes um the school's dean uh, played by connie Britton, or her former friend played by allison Bree when she makes them realize what they've done i'm not mad about it and i i am actually sometimes incredibly uncomfortable with how much i watch and i'm like yes you know absolutely make people realize how complicit they are as i am com- complicit in the emotional violence that cassie is perpetrating you know i i admit to all of it but um yeah i i don't think it is cinema's job and especially not horror cinema's job to make us comfortable with what we see like there are things that we should be confronting uh both in movies and in ourselves and you know, it's it's not always it's not always easy. It's generally not fun. It shouldn't be, but it's it's things that we should be doing. I think
0: definitely, and um, there are so many great examples of that. I, I, you could automatically point to a movie like Hard Candy. You could definitely point to a movie like Audition. Uh, you know, the women in those films, you know, their anger comes from a very righteous, very justified place, and so in in theory, in principle, we are rooting for them. But once they get into serious practice, once they start to really do what they're going to do to these men, then there's a part of us in at least those films, and again, others of its type, that will get a little queasy, that will say, oh, we wanted them hurt, but we didn't expect this. We didn't expect this level of savagery. How could we? Our minds don't go there the way this filmmakers does, Clearly. And as far as what you said, that, you know, there's room for horror films to mean more than they mean, that goes down to just about any horror film, really, on some level. Every horror film is about more than this, about the sense that it is capturing some cultural fear that is not necessarily a literal cultural fear. Most people would point to something like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and say, that's a very simple movie about a massacre with a chainsaw, and it takes place in guess where? (laughs) But... What's that movie about? That movie is about a lot of things. That movie is about uh, fear of mechanization, uh, fear of the loss of jobs. Uh, It's about economic decline and where that leads people. And the, you know, it's about these pockets of our own country that may as well be other countries to us because they are so, you know, cloistered and so foreign to us that they may as well be as distant as, say, Vietnam which in 1973 was the point now you don't need to know all of that to get a whole hell of a lot from that movie but it's all there and it does help you enjoy the movie whether you see it or not and even the original Halloween which again on some level I would almost dismissively say it certainly is about a guy with a you know large uh, overalls and a white rubber mask and he's terrorizing people and it's great and it's done well for something like that but even then there's layers. What's the Again, what's the first thing we see? The first thing Michael Myers does as a small child is has what is subtextually a very sexual experience with his own sister. Now, there's nothing textually sexual about it, but in terms of the knife and the penetration and the fact that he's watching her fuck before then, that is an extremely sexually charged scene. And that's what it's really about. And that's why it gives us a layer of discomfort psychologically on top of just seeing a small child butcher his sister. (laughs) You know, there's always something more uh, if you know where to look for it. I mean, that's what we're doing here. That's what this podcast, I think, is all about. And why I'm so glad we've done it for a year now is that any film uh, in the horror genre, I think, down to the silliest, scummiest, $2 direct-to-video production, you'll find something if you know where to look, I think.
1: I, I agree. And I I do think that Halloween is the movie that gives us the rules that Randy tells us, you know, and it's it's also in the um the speech that Robert Englund gives in Urban Legend, where it's it's talking, you know, young women, mind your children. And I do think that a good a good chunk of the reason why Laurie survived is that she did she she took care of tommy and lindsay she wasn't distracted by boys the way that her friends were she wasn't distracted by alcohol the way that her friends were and she kept she kept the kids safe and she was also i think i think incredibly brave even even in the the 2018 sequel and especially this one just incredibly incredibly brave and yep laurie strode fangirl for life
0: incredibly brave but not incredibly virtuous in these new movies which i think is an interesting distinction you Mm -hmm. could say that for example uh that yes the original halloween did set a lot of these rules and one of those rules of course is you know be a good girl or get slashed but that was war in this one well that's just it uh Mm -hmm. turned on its head in these more recent ones she's not portrayed as being a particularly good mother no Uh, except where it really really in the animalistic instinct sense counts of looking after your young but in the modern context of sharing and having feelings and respecting you know their autonomy and all that no she's a terminally shitty mother but that's fine because that's you know that's all surface and what we're seeing is that this is a survival trip this is about more than that it has to be So, but we see that she's a recovering alcoholic and not always recovering well. Uh, We see that she has extreme mental and emotional problems, not always great with taking her meds, certainly not always great with dealing with solutions to problems in any way that would make sense to other people or that society would approve of. Uh, Makes an ass of herself uh, a lot of the time and embarrasses the people around her. But, but she survives. And by the way, that was a very strong choice I think because I I would have put Vegas odds on her not making it through this movie. It would be the easiest thing in the world for them to whack her during this film and to make it big and poignant and a great, huge death scene. And it would have been been fucking boring. We'd all expect it, you know. But to have her come through this and out the other side, that was such a stronger choice, I think, you know, because I have no problem believing that this is it, that she's probably done with this franchise after this. That's great. That's fine. She went out on a huge high note uh, because any other time having her survive something like this is just begging, you know, for them to make another one after this and saying, Oh no, no, we can still do more. I don't think that's the reason they did it. I think they did it out of sheer artistic integrity. Uh, and I applaud that. I think it was, you know, a wonderful way to subvert audience expectation. But again, you know, she does not need to be virtuous in this film to survive. If anything, It's the fact that she's fucking had enough. And that's the reason. That's the reason that she pulls through. And that's a harder story to write, I think. But uh, it also makes more sense in the modern context. Because again, we're all fucked up now. I mean, there's not a Laurie Strode in the bunch of us in terms of that original, you know, kind of virginal, uh, you know, no, we all have to live with our vices and drag them through this world like, you know, Jacob Marley's chains. And to see someone be able to do that and fight along anyway. That's the heroism. Heroism's not from saying no to drugs and drinking and sex. Heroism is from somehow managing to shoulder all of those sins onto yourself, I think, and still prevail and still survive and triumph. That's what I that's what I read from.
1: Well, the the thing that got me, and this is this is probably the 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 biggest spoiler i guess besides the fact that you know everything else we already spoiled but there's there's a part in the movie where she she looks at at her phone wallpaper which again is the picture of of karen her daughter and she gets a gun and she just looks so broken and so defeated and in the quietest voice possible calls 911 and reports a suicide and it really looks like she is just done you know she's she's been brave for for 40 years 40 42 years at this point i think and she's just like no and you you know she she puts the gun to her temple and then she puts it under her chin and it you know camera pans away you hear a gunshot and you see something splatter on a wall and you're like oh fuck and then someone in a michael myers mask comes in and kind of opens the door which had mostly creaked shut and there she is and she basically is just like did you really think i was going to commit suicide and we and, did, we and did. They the, got us. the actual joy that my heart felt that she was still there it's Ugh, it's so stupid, probably, but it's like, oh, well, she's still here, we're all still here.
0: Yeah, and by the way, there's people in the audience who could quibble with that. They could say that that whole, you know, fake out and setup was not really necessary or even sensible from a storytelling perspective in terms of her baiting the hook for this trap. And maybe they're right, but thematically, I think it made a lot of sense to To put that there, and I'm willing to forgive the fact that it might not necessarily be, you know, a rational story point. To first of all give us that little jump, they got us. They got us. We were just about ready to believe, having seen everything that we had seen, that she would go out that way. I was ready to believe, and you know, it's a great fun fake out and a great, you know, badass moment. And uh, you know, again, very character driven, and I love that. and it, it got me. It definitely did.
1: I was going to say in a little bit of a throwback to Karen in Halloween and Halloween Kills, where twice in once in each movie, she had her own little fake out and then, you know, would say, gotcha. Yeah, and... yeah
0: big on misdirection these films And I, yeah. I have to give him that and I, I keep having to remind myself that Danny McBride is one of the puppet masters
1: I know Danny, McBride. Danny McBride.
0: God love him I mean after playing jerks and Shit heels for yeah. like 15-20 years good for him he's going to show us something different yeah. Uh, yeah, respect the hell out of it I know he's trying to get away from those roles uh, I think Righteous Gemstones was probably the last one he was willing to accept but good for him can't wait to see it but no what I was going to mention was what you had talked about the uh doctor who i had no idea was on guiding light
1: yes so um as backstory uh when i was growing up my mom's favorite soap opera was guiding light and so i spent a lot of time in the summer watching guiding light and i don't know if this is true for everybody but for me if it's a show that i've watched for a long time the characters start to feel like my friends and if it's something like that that i've you know essentially watched since i was a child and it's been off the air for a long time now but you know it's like they almost feel like members of my family like i know them very well even though they're not i know they're not real okay like please don't don't add us on twitter asking if i need you know an intervention i know i know you know i know they're not real but um one of the people on the show was a uh, michael o'leary who played Dr. Rick Bauer, who was not a very good doctor. I think he accidentally killed a whole bunch of people. Maybe not accidentally. Maybe, you know, there was a serial killer and that was just, you know, subtext, whatever. But he's also in this as Dr. Mathis. And so when I when I saw it, I I texted my mom after and I was like, You will not believe who is practicing medicine in Haddonfield. (laughs) So since it is on Peacock, I ended up fast forwarding to the first scene he's in, and showing it to her, and she was just like, "He's not very nice now," and no, no, he's not. Um, and if you happen to know my mom, please do not tell her what becomes of Dr. Mathis, because I, I might have told a little bit of a lie and just been like, "No, he's fine. He was just, he was just in this one scene. He's fine."
0: Oh, did they send him upstate to play with the uh, other doctors who get yeah. sent up to that farm? Yeah, uh, he, <laughs> in he's, the sunshine. Bet
1: now he's taking care of all of the dogs that are just frolicking,
0: right? In right. the
1: sunshine, chasing the rabbits. Yeah.
0: And once again, uh, we've got this doctor, and we've got this, uh, you know, horrific coworker who's a nurse. And you know, from the time that you see them acting shitty and awful in the hospital, that these two are on the short list in this movie. And you want it. Oh, you want it. You want it so bad. You want these people to die. You want them to die so much more once you find out how she got that promotion, which should have been pretty obvious from the word go. But to have that hammered in when she goes home with the doctor and he's whining her and dining her and she goes in the next room and draws the shower and we're in the audience saying, I want you to die. I want you to fucking die. I want it to be messy. Not only do I want you to die. Not only do I want you to be stabbed to fucking death in front of me on the screen. Yeah, run that fucking shower. I want you to be exploited while you fucking die on the screen. And again, it's ugly. It's ugly fucking impulses that this movie ra- raises within us and then satisfies and makes us feel it afterward of like, oh, wow, that was that was bad. <laughs> Shit. Was I really wishing for that a second ago? God, I'm fucked up, aren't I? wow you know i mean it's it's complicated shit but it's satisfying it's so satisfying in a way that the other movies weren't
1: but that that was the most interesting thing for me because uh dr mathis um is killed by Corey, and then the nurse whose name i i don't remember um sorry i guess um, is killed by Michael Myers who pops up and it's it's very interesting because the Dr. Mathis is killed very brutally but so it, it's not like it's not like either of them got a better death. But it was interesting because as I I think you pointed out with um, Halloween kills the way that Michael stages things, like he's I, I don't want to say an artist but it's it's like watching the difference between a professional and an amateur like he just just does it amazingly he stabs her onto the wall like through a painting and just leaves her hanging there much like the way he did with um with bob in the original
0: correct because he has a trademark to a certain degree even when he's not staging things elaborately Which he doesn't really in this movie. We don't get to see a lot of uh, Michael as the artist the way that we do. We don't
1: see a lot of Michael at all.
0: That's
1: true. But
0: even then, he does still have his little signatures. And that move is one of his signatures. And it also makes me feel like, to a certain degree, fuck Inzu Knives. What I want to know is, what the hell kind of cutlery is Michael Myers using? That he is capable of taking a plain chopping knife, putting it through a human body... Into the wall behind that body. Doesn't have to look for the stud in the wall at all, by the way. Just finds it. Just finds it automatically. And manages to keep that body hanging from that knife. That's some strong-ass knives. I want some of those from my kitchen. If he could be a spokesman, but unfortunately he can't talk. So, <laughs> well,
1: Oh, God. Can you, can you imagine? He has, like, a website. And it's just... <laughs> scrolling text but it's probably those those knives that the people did you ever did you ever get that demonstration that can cut through pennies and things yeah 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 Yeah, yeah. it's It's probably a shoe yeah exactly but i feel like probably what happened is while he was in prison for the better part of 40 years chances are he took a whole bunch of courses maybe in some uh some construction or home design or whatever, and he can eyeball a wall and be like, the stud's right there.
0: Absolutely. He watched a lot of Bob Vila. Yeah. Which also made him good with tools. So again, fantastic movie. Uh Had a great time. Folks, if you haven't seen it already, we've probably spoiled most of it for you, but go see it anyway.
1: Thanks for hanging <laughs> uh, out.
0: <laughs> before uh, before we sign off, Cal, if you had to point to a scene in this film that was your absolute favorite, what would it be?
1: Okay, so this is... <sighs> This is probably the part of me that explains why I love H2O so much. But I really liked her in the grocery store with Frank because it was, it was the one scene of uncomplicated joy, I think. And then she leaves and she's so happy. And then she runs into um, Sandra, the survivor, as it turns out, from Halloween Kills and her sister and just gets it completely spoiled for her and they're like the sisters like why are you smiling like how how dare you be happy here essentially i think i think that is probably my favorite scene but if we're talking about about things um you know like actual horror movie scenes i really liked the early things with allison and Corey, and it reminded me of um again promising young woman which i love so so much and there's a part in that where cassie and her boyfriend are in the drugstore and it's so goofy like they're just having they're just having fun it's like a date and they start they start singing singing along with this this song that's playing and it's it's just so goofy and ridiculous but you're watching and you're like oh my god they're gonna be okay and i like in the beginning where you're like oh it's it's gonna be okay like allison's clearly traumatized Corey's clearly traumatized but they're they're good for each other and it's gonna be okay and then you know every possibility for them to be okay is just completely closed off and yeah
0: very good very good yeah rough scenes though in their own way definitely.
1: Yeah. So I guess really, I would say the the radio station probably is where it really just becomes clear, like, oh, this is, they're not going to make it. These two, they're not going to make it.
0: Yeah, I can see that. And then, of course, the radio station killed. That was a pretty extreme one as well, you know. Yep. Uh, mine was definitely the climactic battle between uh, Laurie Strode and Michael Myers. Uh, again, there was something so titanic about it, and we we earned it. Yeah. We got there honestly, uh, and I love that. But it was a toss-up between that and what came immediately after.
1: The procession, yeah.
0: Well, the procession is one thing, but I can't remember quite having the same feeling in a movie that I got when we saw exactly where that procession was leading. When we got yeah. it, it up of that machine. <laughs> I blew my hair right back. I was like, <laughs> okay, because now... Like when you see Michael Myers go into that machine and you caught a glimpse of his fucking brain on the way in, that's just the filmmaker looking us in the eye and daring us. I dare you to bring Michael Myers back after this. I dare you to find some way that they took this fucking hamburger and scraped it out of the bottom of this machine, formed it into a man, put black overalls on it and put it in another movie. Come on. Come on. Show me how that happens. I mean, the finality to it was gorgeous. I, for one, would love it if this were Halloween Ends. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I think if we never got another one again, this would have been perfect. This would have been the high note. I live in the real world, so I know that that's not going to happen. <laughs> but uh, they're going to reboot it, yeah. just like they did everything. But it felt final. It felt like Halloween Ends. It felt good.
1: Also, I just want to say, I'm I'm not a writer. I know I know you are. I know a lot of my friends and our friends are. It felt so accurate the way that afterwards she's finishing her memoir in the middle of the day in a bathrobe. <laughs> just, like, I was like, Oh God, Laurie That's Strode, you, you literary genius.
0: <laughs> I've been writing all day and I've been wearing PJs all day. That is the life. <laughs> and folks, once again, thank you for making that life just a little bit more enjoyable by tuning into our show. We hope you've had a fantastic time. Again, Go see the movie if you haven't already. Uh, If you have seen the movie and you feel like, uh, you know, sharing your thoughts and feelings on it, uh, something more constructive than it sucks and it ruined the franchise, you know, be be creative, guys. Come on. Uh, Then by all means, feel free to add us. We're Press Play Scream on Twitter. And come back next week. Kel and I are going to be talking about the movie Maniac Cop, uh, which feels a little bit like current events these days. Uh, So until then, once again, I'm Josh Vermont. I'm Kelly Hager. And remember, everyone deserves one good scare.
1: Thank you. Have a nice day.